This is our last sermon in the book of Luke. We're going to start right from the beginning. We've been in Luke, I think, about two and a half years. And I have to admit, um, I'm going to miss preaching from Luke. It's been such a rich experience. And I learned things I never knew I never knew. And I hope you have too. I hope that I was... Uh, that, that as we explored the gospel of Luke, that you heard the gospel afresh, and you heard Jesus afresh, and you were made aware and learned of details and parts of the story that encouraged you in ways that maybe if you've been a Christian your whole life, you've never been exposed to. Um, and so Luke has been a faithful companion. And before we get into our sermon, and we're talking about the resurrection this morning, I want to just summarize the book of Luke with uh, a few bullet points. And so, uh, just to kind of go over the theology of Luke, this is just kind of encapsulating what we've learned in the book of Luke. And this comes from um, David Garland's commentary. Um, He just kind of has a summary at the very end of the commentary. And the first is the divine must, which means for Luke, everything that's happening is the outworking of Old Testament prophecy. There's all these musts, so everything that happens must happen. Jesus must be about his father's business when his parents are looking for him and they find him in the temple. You know, he must proclaim the good news of the reign of God and that uh, he was sent for this purpose. The Son of Man must suffer at the hands of wicked men and be killed and rise on the third day. These are divinely authorized events in the plan of God, which means that everything that happens in the story is not happenstance. These things must happen. God is sovereignly at work orchestrating these things. And of course, that is not to downplay human agency. The people in the story have a role to play for sure, and their decisions matter. But these are things that must happen. God is fulfilling a divine plan. The second thing is the universal welcome to outcast sinners and Gentiles. And I have to admit, this is probably the area of Luke's gospel that surprised me the most. That Jesus' entire ministry is about embracing those on the margins of society in the first century, which were the poor and the diseased and Gentiles and women. And the whole book really revolves around this universal welcome to those on the margins. In other words, the gospel doesn't put restrictions on who can enter the kingdom of God. Tax collectors, Samaritans, the poor, there are prostitutes. And no doubt, this embrace of people on the margins causes divisions. There are people like the religious elite, they're not happy about that. They're not happy about these people on the margins being welcomed. And so when Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost, this is who he's talking about. And it reminds us that God is no respecter of persons. The third thing is prayer. Luke is the evangelist of prayer. And you may remember as we've been going through Luke, I emphasized very heavily that Jesus always seems to be disappearing for prayer. There are no less than nine instances of Jesus you know, disappearing into the hillside or or praying all night. And it's not because Jesus is simply trying to set a good example for us. He needs it. He needs the empowerment of the Spirit of God to guide him. An example would be when he was praying all night just before he chose the 12, he needed guidance. He needed direction 
to figure out who he should choose. We think, really? He's a son of, he's God in the flesh. He needs direction? Yes. Because he had emptied himself and he didn't have that omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. He was truly a man. And like all men, we need the guidance of God and the direction and help of, of God. <clears throat> the third is salvation. Now we think this is obvious, right? The third point of the book is salvation. But for Luke, the biggest obstacle to salvation is wealth and the acquisition of riches. And it's something, as we explored through the book of Luke, it came up over and over and over again. In fact, I found myself as a preacher being uncomfortable at times because I just didn't know how to move through these passages without always giving a disclaimer, and I got to the point where I just stopped doing that. I was just going to let the text speak the way it was meant to speak. And what I mean about wealth being an, ob an, an obstacle to salvation is in the book of Luke, there's these woes to the rich. You remember that? There's the parable of the sower where the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. The Pharisees are condemned as lovers of money. Those who gain the world, in other words, all the world's possessions, lose their soul, right? You can gain the world and lose your own soul. And in Luke, the rich scarcely make it into the kingdom of God. It is possible, though, if, like Zacchaeus, they um, divest themselves of much of their wealth. Zacchaeus gives half of his wealth to the poor. And this is all meant to correct this faulty notion that riches were a sign of God's favor. And that somehow the richer you were, the more godly you were. Luke corrects us of that notion. And then there is Jesus as the rejected prophet. Right, right out of the gate in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is in the synagogue in, in um, Nazareth and stands up and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He quotes Isaiah. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Let the oppressed go free. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. And the first thing they want to do is kill him. And this goes over and over and over again. And every time it happens, Jesus reminds them the Son of Man is going to suffer and be killed. So Jesus is the rejected prophet and he is in a long line of prophets going back to the Old Testament who were also rejected. And then finally, there's the geographical movement of the good news. Luke arranges his story not just chronologically, but geographically. If you remember, as we preach through the book of Luke, chapters 9 through 19, there's this movement of the preaching and the message going up from Capernaum in the north, where Jesus is from, as he moves down to the south, and the message is not just moving geographically, it is moving culturally. So he is moving beyond the bounds of Jewish people to Samaritans, to Gentiles, to Romans, to all these different categories of people finally arriving in Jerusalem at the very end. And, and then in the book of Acts, we learned that it launches out from Jerusalem to the rest of creation. And the point of this kind of geographical movement of the good news is to teach us that God is not to be locked down with any one particular culture or people. God is on the move, and the point of the geographical movement is that the kingdom of God has no headquarters. 
because the movement of God's Spirit cannot be bound to any land or people or culture because it's going to move to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the final scene, which is the ascension. So let's read Luke 24, 38 through 53. Hear the word of God. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And they were walking, talking about these things, and Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations." beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them as far out as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Father, now we thank you for the book of Luke, we thank you for the message in it. You have transformed us by the hearing of the word because your word is truth. And we pray this morning again for the illumination of your spirit that we may be taught and transformed by the power of scripture to leave this place differently than we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Well, um, for whoever has seen the movie The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson, regardless of what you feel about it, there is this scene at the very end, which I think is the most powerful scene of the entire movie. After the crucifixion is over, there is darkness, and there is the noise of the stone being rolled away, and light starts to come into the dark sepulcher where Jesus is buried. And it slowly permeates, the light slowly permeates the entire tomb, and Jesus sits up. 
And as he sits up, he's looking forward out of the tomb, and he stands up. And when he stands, you can see his hand at his side, and there is still a hole in his hand. The risen Jesus still has a hole in his hand, and he stands up and he moves forward and walks out of the tomb, and the movie ends. And what's striking about that is that the glorified body of Jesus is permanently scarred. And it's a fitting representation because though Jesus conquers death, he bears the marks of the crucifixion. Edward Shilato, having witnessed the horrors of World War I and struggling to cope in its aftermath, wrote this poem called Jesus of the Scars. Maybe you've heard it before. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If, when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone." That the scars of the crucifixion remain on Jesus' resurrected body is important because it shows us that he wasn't just a spirit or an apparition. His resurrection is physical. And the second thing, and the second reason that that's important is the scars of Jesus on his post-resurrection glorified body is a forever reminder that we preach a crucified Savior that even in glory, the wounds of his suffering and death remain. And that there is no forgiveness that brings acquittal before God without those scars. In other words, the resurrected body of Jesus has been, not been so transformed that the disfigurement of his suffering has been erased. I want you to just let that soak in for a moment. That the resurrected body of Jesus, the glorified risen body of Jesus, has not been so transformed that his suffering has been erased. In other words, he bears the marks of suffering. Which means that forever, Jesus in his body bears those scars and bears those marks. The risen and ascended Jesus forever has visible wounds on his hands and feet and on his side. Now the kind of resurrection body that Jesus has is not something we really are told by Luke. In fact, the point by Luke is not to describe physically the body of Jesus. I don't think Luke knows, and there's really no way for us to fully know what kind of body Jesus has. But we know that in the other gospel accounts, in Mark's gospel, Jesus appears 
seemingly out of nowhere, where the 11 are sitting down for a meal, and John tells us that Jesus appears in a house where the doors are locked. Now, if you've heard this before, we're off, we often say things like, Jesus, his resurrected body could walk through walls. Maybe it could. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is able to be with his people after the resurrection. And, he's a, and nothing can stop him. Nothing can prevent him. Not even locked doors. And at first, the disciples think they're seeing a phantom, right? They're startled and frightened as though they saw a spirit. But Jesus corrects them. And he says, why are you troubled? And why does your heart doubt? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And the disciples are in this kind of state of disbelief. It says for joy. They can't believe that Jesus is really alive. I told the story last week about when my brother died 15 years ago. I had dreams for an entire year that my brother was still alive. And many of those dreams, I'd be sitting at the table with my family, and my brother would be sitting right there eating. And he'd be smiling. And I was in tears saying to my brother, but you're dead? Even in the dream, I was in disbelief, but overcome with a sense of joy. And that went on for a full year. And maybe it was God's way of telling me that my brother did live. My brother was a believer. And he was alive with the Lord. The disciples can't believe that Jesus is alive. They just can't believe it. They're in this state of shock, it says, for joy. They're so overcome with joy. I told the story last week about Tom Hanks in the movie The Castaway when he comes back after four years of being lost at sea and the people who are just beside themselves and his ex-fiance who faints. She just can't believe it. The disciples are, they just can't believe what they're seeing and they think they see a ghost. And Jesus does something that we probably glaze right over when we read through the text that he asked for a piece of fish. We think, why is that important? Well, it's important because ghosts don't eat fish. You know, they're, they're, they're in shock and disbelief, and Jesus says, can you pass the salt? <laughs> He's hungry. He has an appetite. And while they're picking their jaws up off the floor, you know, Jesus is eating a meal with them. And this eating of the fish is further proof that Jesus is very much alive and real. And it reinforces their role as eyewitnesses because certainly... Critics would come up later and say, you just saw a ghost, or you thought you saw Jesus. And if you can imagine the disciples in their Aramaic tongue saying, no, 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 I gave him a piece of fish. He ate fish. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't a dream. I wasn't imagining things. I mean, literally, I broke a piece of fish off and put it in his hand, and I saw him eat it. I could hear him smacking. I mean, all of this serves to lift the heart up in encouragement in the knowledge that this risen Jesus is real, that he really, really rose. Now, the new body is not identical to the, old, the previous one, but it's not entirely different either. The new body, and this is the point, is at home in both dimensions of God's world, in heaven and earth. 
And this is really interesting, that the resurrected body of Jesus can do things that normal people who are bound to this earth can't do, and he can seemingly move back and forth between both dimensions of God's creation in heaven and earth. And this makes sense, because at the end of of the book of Revelation, heaven and earth will finally be joined together in one. Now, at the moment, our bodies are earthly only. Jesus' new body is at home in both earth and heaven. And that may give us some glimpse forward into what our resurrected bodies will be like, being freely able to pass back and forth between all of the different realms of the universe. Now, Jesus knows they're still confused And so he clears it all up and says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. And everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. And this is an important point I want to make, that only Jesus unlocks the Old Testament mysteries. These observant Jews, some more observant than others, knew their Hebrew scriptures They knew the Psalms and the Law and the Prophets, but they couldn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Can we go back to that slide and just leave it there for a moment? All those cryptic verses about the suffering servant and the breaking free from the power of the grave and the descendant of David whose throne is everlasting, all of it is fulfilled in Jesus. And so Jesus proceeds to explain that to them. I wonder how long that conversation would have lasted. He's quoting verses, you know, the Pentateuch and the law and the prophets, and you can only imagine what's happening in the mind as they're discovering those verses that they've known their whole life and seeing them in a brand new light. You know, it's like someone showing you something you've never seen before, but you've been looking at a million times. You know those those pictures you see where there's, you know, did you, can you see the, the woman's face and the horse's mane and you're looking at it for, what? Like, no way. There was one a couple months ago where you were looking and some people saw green, a green dress or a gold dress and some people saw a blue dress and everyone's frustrated at the other person saying, there's no way you're seeing that because I'm seeing this. They're, they're smiling because they know what I'm talking about. Oh, that's what Jesus does. He shows them in the scriptures, the scriptures they think they've known so well for so long, and he says, look, that's talking about me. And I can only imagine that when he pulls the covers back, they go, it's elation to see that it was about him all along. And their hearts are cemented in faith and belief. And what Jesus is revealing that is that the mystery reveals that Jesus is the climax of the story. That all the law, that all the prophets, that all of Israel's history is pointing to him. He's the climax of the story, and he's the one that it's pointing to. And it's a story that they're a part of now. It's not just an abstract story something unrelated or unconnected to them, but it's a story that now they find themselves in. They're a part of this ongoing saga of God's redemption in the world 
and God's salvation. And he capitalizes on this moment to give them their marching orders. This is, this is Luke's great commission. All the Gospels have their own version of the great commission. But it says in verse 45, And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, that summary that Jesus said that the scriptures essentially say that the Son of Man should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, nowhere in the Old Testament does it really say that. I mean, it says it, but it doesn't say it like that. And so you could understand how they could have missed it. Jesus is summarizing. Now, it's in, the, it's in the book of Isaiah, it's in the Psalms, it's other places, but it is not the easiest thing to put together. And this goes back to the point that, our point of last week, which is the empty tomb is not self-explanatory. And the narrative of the Gospels does require explanation. Well, God gives through his son, the disciples, and all disciples, these marching orders. And he says that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you're my witnesses. And then he tells them to tarry and wait until they be endued with power for this mission. And this is important because Jesus is about to send them into the world, a world fraught with dangers, and potential persecution. But knowing that death has no lasting power is a real game changer. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus could have given them these marching orders at any time in his ministry. He could have said much earlier on, I'm sending you out into the world to preach this message of forgiveness of sins in my name. But he waits until he is risen from the dead because as they see that nothing can hinder Jesus and his ministry, that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you, and that death does not end human existence, then he gives them this message because they're certain to encounter resistance and persecution, and some of them are going to die. But seeing the risen Jesus, it's like you can be courageous when you know you have infinite lives. I don't know how else to put it. If you've ever played video games and you get to the end of the game and you kind of unlock a feature where now you've got infinite lives, you start the game all over again. I've played a few video games in my day. And then when you have those infinite lives, then you just take risks. You know, you're jumping over the dragon and you're, you know, you're, jump, you know, you're running on alligator heads. I'm thinking pitfall in the 80s. But it's like when, when you know that death cannot stop you, when you know that death will not end your existence, when you know that there is a power at work in you and in the world, the power of God through his son Jesus, that helps you to take risks because it's risky preaching the gospel in a world like ours. It's not always easy. Now, I think our problem is either that we don't really believe it or that we're too comfortable because there was something different in 
the first and second century where these people wanted to take these risks. They had some type of impetus, a motivation to take risks for the word and the kingdom of God. We don't want to take risks for the gospel. Life is simply too good in the Western world, the world we live in. Life is too good. We don't want to take risks for the gospel, right? Why shake up the apple cart when we're comfortable? Being comfortable is a good thing, and it's a bad thing at the same time. There's this scene from Rocky Three. My wife and daughters are crazy about the Rocky series. You know, there's five, now there's six, seven. It's like Rocky 27. But there's, there's a scene in Rocky Three. Who even remember Clubber Lane played by Mr. T? And it, I remember in the 1980s, the first time I saw Mr. T, Clubber Lane in Rocky Three, and he was scary. I mean, he had the mohawk going on. He was scary. And Rocky is talking with, after he's been insulted in a press conference by Clubber Lane, who wants to eat Rocky for lunch because he wants that title so bad. And there's a scene in a room where Rocky has a suit on. He's talking to Mick, his trainer. And Rocky's angry because Mick says, you don't stand a chance against this guy. He'll eat you alive, Rock. And, Rock, and Rocky's, what, you don't believe in me, Mick? And he says, you want to know what happened? Rocky, and he sits down with him, and he says, you got civilized. And I say all that to say that we're so civilized that we don't take any risks for the gospel. We don't think we stand anything to gain by preaching the gospel. But this is the power of God. It's a salvation, the Bible says. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. These last two and a half years that we've been moving through the book of Luke and discovering this message of the kingdom of God fulfilled in God's own son, Jesus, it's worth taking risks for, but sometimes we're too comfortable to want to. We don't want to shake things up. We're so civilized. We stand nothing, or at least we think we stand nothing to gain through the preaching of repentance for the, forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. But this is exactly what Jesus commissions his disciples to do. He launches them out into the world and says, I want you to preach this message of the forgiveness of sins. And it's of the utmost significance that this is what Jesus said just before he departed. It's really important that this is the message he gives them right before he departed. And it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and we're continually in the temple blessing God. The ascension of Jesus galvanizes this two-way blessing where the people, Jesus' followers, are being blessed, and this experience causes them to bless God. We often think, well, how do we bless God? Worship is blessing God. That's what blesses God. God says, you want to bless me? That's what he wants. He wants that pure worship. And when we withhold worship, we're sinning. Maybe you come into church and you don't like a song. And 
not going to sing, right? Whenever we withhold worship, that's a sin. Because that's what God wants. That's how God wants to be blessed. And they're so empowered by what happens in the ascension of Jesus when he goes up and is carried up in their sight that they're constantly, continually blessing God, worshiping God in the temple. And this helps us to understand how the church and this era we're living in now gets started. Because the ascension ends Jesus' earthly ministry, but it ushers in this new era in which the mission of God is continued by the Holy Spirit working through the church. And this comes back to the fact that now we're a part of this story. We find ourselves in the story that Luke is telling every single day because the Holy Spirit is now at work in each one of us, individually and collectively as a body, continuing God's mission in the world. And we confess this in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus ascended and is sitting now at the right hand of the Father, at the majesty on high, where one day, and we are waiting for this, where he will return to judge the living and the dead in the same way that he went up. Now, there's a lot of other things I can say that the ascension teaches us, the theology that it instructs us and what it means for us. I could go on and on and on. But if I can just say one more thing, or a couple more things, it teaches us that resurrection is physical and it's visible. And we're waiting for that resurrection. We're waiting for the return of the Lord to return in the same way that he departed. Luke is not teaching us about spatial dimensions because depending on where the earth was turning and where Jerusalem was, it may not have been up, it may have been out, right? That's not Luke's point. Sometimes we get caught up in those details. The point is that what's happening means that Jesus has indeed won the victory. His enthronement in heaven means that he now reigns and it foreshadows his return to earth. And that's good news. That's good news for us, that we serve not just a crucified Savior, but a Savior who rules and reigns over the cosmos, sitting on a throne in heaven at this very moment. He is not waiting to reign. He reigns, and he's in control, and he has all power. And that should lift up our hearts with thanksgiving this week. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for this sure word of encouragement. There's so much more we could have said, but let our hearts be lifted up in praise and worship and in thanksgiving with the knowledge that Jesus not only conquered death, but that the scars that he continues and will continue to bear is a sign to us of what he paid, price paid for our redemption, for our salvation. That it came at a price that we should be rescued from our sins, and Father, we're so grateful for that. Let our hearts this week, as we think about the things we should be grateful and thankful for, Lord, let our hearts rest in that knowledge that we have been saved by a powerful Savior who allowed 
the world to do its worst and absorbed all of the hatred and all of the wickedness into himself and still conquered. And not only that, but died in our place. Father, we thank you now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.